Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now from the White House, the economist Jared uh, Bernstein, of course, a member of the White House Council on Economic Advisors. Dr. Bernstein, what is so charming about your work out of Hunter College in Columbia is you've always gone for the societal effect of America. How does the Biden administration sustain the confidence of society, given the shock of these these false steps in our in our clearing from the pandemic? Yeah, it's a it's an important question, and and uh, I do want to make clear that while you appropriately called me Dr. Bernstein, I'm not a medical doctor, and uh, we have a, a deep staff of uh, medical authorities and public health officials who are just pouring over this information. Uh, on your question, which again, uh, it's it's uh, always a joy to talk to someone who uh, kind of knows the history of what we're talking about here. Um, if you look at the polling on the infrastructure proposal, north of 70% uh, of Americans are uh, supportive and more than 50% of Republicans are. And the reason is, is when it comes to the fact that there are 400,000 schools and childcare centers where lead leaches into their water. There's 30 million people who don't have access to, to fast broadband. Uh, there are essential workers facing poverty. Uh, these are issues that are well understood uh, by so many people uh, outside of the Beltway in terms of their necessity. I'm not just talking about voters, I'm also talking about governors and mayors who understand the cost of disinvestment in infrastructure. Jared, what is a change in the transition of 100 days or whatever the number of days is from the Trump administration's take on science from where you sit versus the Biden administration? This morning there's going to be a press conference, I believe at 10 a.m. Tell us the science that you observe at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, from the moment that President Biden took office, uh, you know, facts were uh, very much uh, back in the mix. And science is uh, a, a huge part of that. Um, obviously, uh, Dr. Fauci has continued to play a key role, uh, but this has always been a, a fact and science-driven area of, uh, of inquiry for, for our administration. And uh, that's precisely what's uh, occurring right now as we speak. I'm not gonna lean into it because you know, I wanna stay in my economics lane, uh, but uh, that's the, the fact of the case. Jared, that's the responsible thing to do, and we'd expect nothing less from you, sir. But we do have to talk about the economy and the reopening effort as it bears to the context around the vaccination effort as well. So, Jared, let's go there. Does this jeopardize the vaccination timeline of the administration <clears throat> and potentially reopening this economy in any way, shape or form? It is a totally fair question to which I don't know the answer and I don't think uh, anyone else does either. I think before we can make the kinds of timing determinations that you're asking about, we have to understand uh, how disruptive this is and we just don't know yet. Uh, it is the case, as you well know, again, I think the rescue plan, I don't think, we know the rescue plan uh, played a key role in producing and distributing vaccines, in helping us really uh, accelerate the curve of getting shots in arms. 
150 million shots in arms, 150 million checks out the door. So that, that's the rescue plan in action. Uh, but uh, it's a fair question to which we don't have an answer yet. And it wouldn't be prudent for me to speculate, uh, given the information, I should say the lack of information I have at this point. It also did something else, didn't it? It fueled a big debate about inflation. And we'll get that data in about 33 minutes, sir. So let's talk about that, because I imagine that was really the impetus to hear from the White House today around the inflation data in America. I've been asking this question continually. We all have on this program. The base case, the consensus from you, Jared, is transitory from the Federal Reserve, transitory. How will you know if you're wrong? Yeah, so that's a great question. And, and if you look at the document that myself and my colleague Ernie Tedeschi wrote yesterday, it's on the White House blog, uh, we had a section that's gotten a, a little bit less attention than the, the base effects and the pent-up supply issues, the transitory issues. We talked about inflationary expectations. For long-term inflationary, uh, for, for understanding the long-term of uh, inflation's trajectory, you re it's really an, an expectations game. And one of the things we put in there, I, 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 people may not have had their coffee yet, so I apologize if I'm waxing too statistical, is a, a something called the Common Index of Inflation Expectations. This is a kind of a blending of over 20 different indicators of inflation expectations. We borrowed the technology from the Federal Reserve. And it does show that expectations have been rising, uh, but from historically low levels to more normal ones. So I think that kind of an index, which incorporates so many different household survey measures, market measures, is the right way to think about uh, future uh, pressures, uh, whether, whether, whether the anchor uh, maintains or is, is, uh, is nudged. Oh, what would you say, though, Jared, to people who push back on your idea of transitory and say, we're doing something different. This is an experiment of helicopter money dropping cash into people's bank accounts while keeping rates very low. What's your response? Well, in fact, we've done this sort of thing before. And in fact, uh, not only did we see unemployment fall to 50-year lows with a uh, fiscal stimulus that was highly pro-cyclical in the last expansion, but inflation continued to miss its target from the downside. So I think it's really not necessarily mystery or magic. You simply have to look at the indicators. We are, uh, as we tried to express in that blog yesterday, you know, pretty obsessively monitoring and engaging uh, the indicators to try to understand the dynamics between heat, which we expect, whether it's the rescue plan or the jobs plan, helping families and businesses get the relief that they need, helping states and localities get the resources they need, safely reopening schools. All of that is going to contribute to economic growth, and it's going to have some impact on prices as we're seeing. But the key point is distinguishing between heat and overheat. And the overheat story, which we argue is something that we're going to completely watch carefully, uh, but is a lower risk uh, probability than uh, the uh, importance of the other measures I've talked about, uh, that has to be gauged as well. And I talked about how I believe it should be done. There's a question about confidence, too, about the confidence to go out and spend that $1.8 trillion cash pile. How concerned are you about the issues around vaccines affecting that confidence and slowing growth more materially? What is going to be the measure for you on that front? We're going to have to uh, continue to look, as we do, at not just the monthly and the quarterly uh, in, uh, data on uh, consumer spending, on travel, on seating at restaurants. Um, we're going to have to look at the daily and the weekly impl implications of this. And, and I think that's been actually a, a real advance 
in uh, in economic uh, uh, study uh, in this in this period, which is the availability of very high frequency data that we now have enough to link it up to the more uh, traditional indicators, and so we can know that the credit card data gives us information about consumer spending. And what it was showing was increased confidence, increased re-engaging with commerce, uh, and uh, you know the kinds of price effects <clears throat> that we've been discussing so far. Uh, so. So far, uh, we, we like what we're seeing in, 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 in that regard. Jared, I, for one, as a journalist, appreciate the increased transparency. We've caught up many times together now over the last several months. You put out that blog post on inflation as well. I do wonder, and this is a delicate question, whether you're worried about losing control of the narrative around inflation over the next couple of months. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's really a... A I guess I don't really think about it in sort of control of the narrative story, and maybe I should. Uh, I think about it, it much more in terms of the substance of, of the pressures on prices uh, and uh, just speaking you know, honestly and transparently and truthfully about what we judge to be the case. Um, uh, it, the inflation dynamics are something I have studied for many decades. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I would argue that you know, I was sure. one, not, not, the not the only one, I was one of the folks who argued that the natural rate of unemployment you know, was really many percentage points lower than was previously thought. And that helped us get to a place where we were having a much more equitable, a much more racially rewarding job market when we got to truly full employment. And as we predicted, inflation pressures were, were quiescent. So I think we've learned a lot about this area of macro policy substantively. Right. And I think we just have to continue investigating it. Jared, there's a lot of fancy talk here on inflation, and we can partition it and have a bow tie analysis. You know what? It's about a bag of groceries. I've had more comments from viewers and listeners in the last 48 hours on food inflation than I've had in the last three years. Is it here to stay? Yeah, this is one of the ways economists can really piss off normal people. You got that right. And you're <laughs> you know, leading the charge. So it, shape it, up it, and tell us about food inflation. <laughs> you know, when I talk to my wife about core inflation, I explain that that leaves out you know, food and, and gas prices. She just shakes her head and looks at me like, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, but in fact, that is the gauge that economists in the Federal Reserve uh, used to try to get at the underlying signal because food and energy are much more volatile, energy particularly, but food as well, is very much a global market. So if we want to understand domestic price pressures, we really do have to look at the core. Uh, look, in terms of food inflation, uh, this is some of the sectoral dynamics that, again, we wrote about yesterday, and we do expect to see pressures in uh, some face-to-face uh, -face services, say restaurants, uh, food away from home. Okay, but Dr. People... Bernstein, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but we're going to run out sure. of time. How is the Biden administration, and for that matter, how are the elites of Washington going to react to 4% plus food inflation? Lisa Abramowitz is crushed by 4% plus food inflation. Got that right. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, you know, we're not going to... It, it, I'm not going to lean into the Federal Reserve's lane because it's uh, it's their job to think about uh, you know these uh, sectoral uh, impacts on prices. I think where where we're coming from, we have to look at the American people's nutritional needs and make sure they're meeting them. And both in the rescue plan and in forthcoming uh, ideas that you're going to hear about in the families plan, um, we are uh, taking very seriously uh, the ability of people to meet their nutritional needs. It's something that uh, we think about a lot. We follow 
follow the Pulse survey, which shows how many people, even now, as uh, we as the economy very clearly recovers from the pandemic-induced recession, we have too many people facing uh, nutritional shortfalls, and we have a, a really effective program, uh, SNAP, or formerly called Food Stamps, which meets those needs, and and we've we've extended that program in the rescue plan and some of the prior fiscal packages, and we will continue to make sure that SNAP meets people's nutritional needs. Jared, we always appreciate your time, he nailed sir. That. He Thank just you. Nailed that. Jared Bernstein, White House <clears throat> Council of Economic Advisors member, joining us from the White House on important conversation. Right now, a joy on very short notice. Peter Hotez joins us, Dean of National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez uh, has just been such a support to us on clear thinking through this pandemic. Peter Hotez, somewhere buried in your distinguished and extinguished CV is hematology. It is ignored by so many in virology, in bacteriology, and as the effect of all this upon our blood. Give us a quick synopsis of the hematology of blood clots to these vaccines. Well, Tom, we don't know the full story yet, but there is an emerging story, and, and it's coming out in papers like in the New England Journal of Medicine last week and others, and it has to do with the fact that the two major adenovirus-based vaccines, and that's uh, AstraZeneca and uh, J&J, &J, and not the mRNA vaccines, not the other technologies, um, the, two, the two major adenovirus vaccines by the pharma companies seem to be inducing an immune response. And in some mechanism that we don't fully understand, that's activating an antibody response to platelets, which are associated with blood clotting. And this is causing platelet activation and then these thrombotic events, which unfortunately are happening in the in the veins draining the, the brain that's causing cerebral thrombosis, which right. is a very severe and life-threatening condition. So to be clear here, this is the idea of a vaccine coming over into a cardiac event, as you say, the venous system coming out of the brain being blocked. The number six out of 6.8 million, does that give you pause or is this just a risk at hand? Well, th those are the numbers coming out of the U.S. for the J&J &J vaccine. For the uh, AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine, it's about 1 in 100,000 to maybe 1 in 200,000. So they are rare events. Uh, and, and what countries are going to do about this will depend on the availability of other vaccines. You know, the U.S., we've got a pretty big portfolio. We've got two mRNA vaccines from, from uh, Pfizer and Moderna. We have a Novavax vaccine uh, coming along. They may make a different decision than a country that's entirely dependent on adenovirus vaccines. It's it's going to be risk versus benefit. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's the pro the other problem, of course, is this is not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the background of a very aggressive anti-vaccine lobby that's piling on uh, now globally. And so that could easily derail uh, a lot of efforts. I'm particularly concerned about African and Latin American countries, which back themselves into a corner and uh, in, in the sense that they became totally dependent on these adenovirus vectored vaccines in some cases. This is also true of the Gamalea Russian vaccine, which is also an adenovirus vaccine, but we don't have any information about that. So, so the impact, especially on the world's low and middle income countries, could be really devastating and Dr. I'm really upset about what's going on. Dr. Hotez, this is where I wanted to go, the communication of some of the details as we learn about potential side effects. Do you think that the 
FDA, that the CDC, uh, that the European health officials should have waited before disclosing some of this information? Or do you think that it's important to shore up the feeling of full transparency? You know, it's it's it, you could argue it either way. I think they made the right call because, you know, one of the things that's really important is to reassure the public, both in Europe and the United States and globally, that the uh, regulatory bodies have the pharmacovigilance, the monitoring in hand. And basically, I mean, some in some ways, the American people and Europeans should be reassured that our our regulatory systems, our global governance of vaccines, is intact and can pick up rare events that wouldn't necessarily show up in the phase three trials. So, you know, it's a glass half full, half empty. I, I, I think they, they made the right call. And, and now it's a matter of how you navigate the next few weeks, because we don't have a lot of alternatives, especially for many countries. Dr. Hotez, going back to your other point about the developing world that potentially relies on these non-mRNA vaccines, how much do you think that these types of communications, these news flashes, end up deterring that effort to vaccinate the developing world? Yeah, I think it's a big deal. You know, I've been up against going up against the anti-vaccine lobby for for years and years because I have a daughter with autism and I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, which made me public enemy number one. So I know what they're capable of. And for years I've been saying, look, don't think this is going to stay walled off to North America and Europe. This thing is going to go global. And it has. We're starting to see now those same anti-vaccine messages that's coming out of the U.S. Uh, and, and now we're finding it in Africa. Africa and Latin America. And remember what the other re reason we're seeing this is the Putin government has, uh, and this has been reported by U.S. and British intelligence, has been piling on with this whole systematic program of what's being called weaponized health communications, trying to destabilize democracies with anti-vaccine, uh, anti-science messages and targeting scientists. So this is, this is another big issue. Peter, give us an update on India because the numbers there, the mathematics is not good right now, maybe not as bad as Brazil, but it's there. You mentioned Gamalaya, the Sputnik vaccine as well. Would you take the Sputnik vaccine? Well, not if I had other alternatives. And the reason is because that vaccine has not gone through stringent regulatory, a stringent regulatory authority is but defined by the WHO. It's not gone through WHO prequalification. So there are a lot of unknowns about yeah. it. Now in India, what we're doing is our, we're accelerating our vaccine with biological E in Hyderabad. They're preparing 1.2 billion doses. This is an older school technology recombinant protein vaccine that so far is looking really good. And hopefully that might fill some of the gaps in yeah. Africa and Latin America and globally. On uh, short time. notice, Peter Hotez this morning after this news on Johnson & Johnson. You. He is dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, Baylor College. Adam Posen joins us now, Peterson Institute President. Adam, let's just start there. Set the stage for us for this inflation print in about two hours and 30 minutes. What are you looking for, sir? Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I think I'm looking for a lot of fuss signifying nothing because this inflation print <laughs> is really about technical things like base effects. Just when you bounce back from the kind of shutdown we had, you're just going to end up with readings of inflation. You're also going to have these short-term bottlenecks. As you and Lisa were joking about the word transitory, the transitory issue is really going to come in in 2022. That's where the real Fed debate is. That's where the focus should be. And frankly, that's where Jared Bernstein representing the White House should be talking. The fact that there's going to be some inflation for the next few months showing up in non-core, which, which our headline, which Tom points out, is not going to worry. 
you're right that the Fed is acting like they're worried. They're trying to get ahead of this, but people shouldn't worry. The inflation study that we have is partitioned, Adam Posen, into services and goods inflation. Is that a correct study? It's a correct first cut, but it's not a sufficient cut, Tom. As you know, uh, Jim Stock from Harvard and various people in the Federal Reserve System have been looking at breakdowns of inflation into bigger components, um, excuse me, smaller components, but still significant ones. I think that the two key components to be looking at are, as Jonathan mentioned, wages, because that's ultimately what we care about, both in the sense of its own terms and in the sense that that's the one thing that does lead to future headline inflation. And the other one, which I've been emphasizing for the last couple of weeks publicly, is healthcare inflation. That, you know, healthcare is 18, 19, 20 percent of the economy. It's the one of the services where there is genuinely pent up demand. People who put off procedures they considered elective amidst the, the pandemic and which there will be a shortage of available supply. So either it'll get rationed by people waiting a lot longer or prices will rise. So to me, it's wages and healthcare are the subcomponents you really want to focus on. When do we know whether the wage inflation that we're starting to hear about with some labor shortages, whether it's transitory as well, or whether that has longer lasting legs? It's a really good question, Lisa, and there's no simple answer because wages, as we know, have been getting compressed for a couple of decades now. I don't mean there's been no growth, but the share of GDP growth going to wages has been way down versus preceding decades. So there's some way you could have wages growth without it necessarily turning into inflation if basically workers get to take back some of the money that capital has been holding on to. Um, and that's hard for the Fed to discern the difference, both because you don't get the data till later yeah. and because it looks very political. So there's no easy call on that, I'm afraid. Uh, Dr. Posen, we like to get out in front of the zeitgeist. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail. Right now I'm going to succeed and anticipate your essay in Foreign Affairs magazine. Folks, this will be out pretty much any day here for the May issue. And you speak of the nostalgia all of us have. John Farrow's incredibly nostalgic. Lisa Bramowitz just bathes in nostalgia. <laughs> and we're all doing it about trying to find an America, trying to find an Atlantic policy from another time and place. What does it mean for our viewers and our listeners as we wax nostalgic? Thank you for citing my forthcoming article, Tom, in Foreign Affairs. What I mean when I talk about the price of nostalgia is this fixation that American politicians have on heavy metal, on men bashing machines, running, running tough fisheries, all these sorts of visuals that you see on the Bruce Springsteen Jeep commercials about what is the important good way to have a good middle-class job. And it's nostalgia because it's misplaced because those kinds of jobs, there's only so many of those. Even in, in the best of times, you're only going to be able to add a couple percent to the workforce doing that. And it's not going to help the rest of the economy. And it just further ignores, frankly, women and people of color who are predominantly in slow-wage services jobs among the, and, and whereas the uh, old manufacturing sector part of the nostalgia is it's overwhelmingly white men. And so this just further reinforces the, the sense of frustration and privilege. And the other point just to make is that it's not going to work. I mean, there are people who think you do this, you, you fixate on manufacturing because you'll buy off the fascists. 
but it's not going to buy them off because all it's going to do is reinforce their sense of special status. So I'm urging the Biden administration and people to get past the nostalgia and worry about bringing up jobs for everybody. It's an important essay, Adam. We appreciate your time, sir. As always, Adam Poston, Peterson Institute, President. Simona Makuda with State Street, their senior economist with a really, really smart note out on linking fiscal and monetary into our inflation worry. Simona, which is more important for this fear of runaway inflation, the fiscal story or the monetary story? Well, first of all, I think none of them are particularly impactful in the very near term. Everything that we are seeing today has to do with what we are talking about just now, uh, reopening, base effects, all of that. I think uh, where the policy framework and the combination and monetary and fiscal shift in the, the way we, we set policy talks more about inflation over the medium term. And it's hard to tell really which one is more important than the other because there are many facets to the fiscal side. Uh, but I think we come back to monetary and monetary policy almost has this role of uh, guiding, you know, to what extent fiscal spending or fiscal expansion is allowed to uh, help the economy run hot before monetary sort of puts in the brakes to it. I think at the moment you have a combination where on both sides the intent is to really allow for more frequent and more prolonged episodes of the economy running hot on both sides of policy. Let's go. Let's talk. No, let's talk from macro to the grocery store, because there's a question of what prices we're looking at as sort of the red herring to signal that perhaps there is a longer lasting inflationary push. Are there particular goods, particular services that you view as harbingers of perhaps greater inflation to come? So I look at visible prices, what I consider, you know, uh, things that the average person would pay attention to. And there are two in particular, energy prices, gasoline and food prices that I think are more visible to the average person. And why are they important? They are important because they speak to how you form inflation expectations, right? So we as economists, we understand the difference between core inflation and headline inflation. But, you know, really, what are you experiencing in real life? You do not experience core inflation, right? Uh, you, you experience the life as a whole and inflation as a whole. For policy making purposes, core inflation is very important. For the average person, it's headline that helps that inflation ex expectation. So I think it's, 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 we should not dismiss food inflation. Uh, as, as an element in shaping inflation expectations. But again, one point I would make, from a policy standpoint, and you're looking not just at the peaks, right? You're looking at the sustainability of these trends. Uh, remember, we were at two and a half percent inflation in, you know, just a couple of years ago. We were close to three percent, four percent, even in in 2011. It didn't last. So really, the question that we all are watching for, and that's why I say the 2021 inflation is important. I think for markets, it's 2022 inflation that's more important still because it will talk about the sustainability. Something the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, Rich Clarida, talked about recently as well. Simona, great to catch up. Thank you very much. Simona Mokota there, the State Street senior economist. 
This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.